I was once a shameless full-time dope Yeah, me, pal. Yeah, me, pal. The sweet mother's son. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, Aloe is created by our good friend Bob Forrest with his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared, to create a treatment center that treats addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has literally decades of experience in treating addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They offer the most comfortable detox that is possible, which is what we all want when we're kicking heroin or benzos or alcohol or anything. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, equine therapy, the super spiritual sweat lodge, surfing, and much, much more. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to Southern California to get help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for sober people who choose a clean and sober way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? The public pool in East Orange, New Jersey? CASL is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. CASL is the platform where you can meet beautiful junkies and crackheads from all over the world. Install the app now on your App Store or Google Play Store. It's totally fucking free. And the more people they have in the app, the more people that you can potentially meet. Clean and sober love, CASL. It is a sober dating revolution. Do you guys like cold brew coffee like I like cold brew coffee? Because if you do, you should try Grady's Cold Brew Coffee. Their website is gradyscoldbrew.com. They make a delicious cold brew coffee, and they are offering Dopey listeners 25% off if you use the Dopey code DOPEY25. Grady's is an independently owned and operated coffee company that was founded in 2011 in New York, in the Bronx, up in Hunts Point. Grady is a real person. Grady's Cold Brew Kit brews and pours 36 cups of cold brew coffee, three batches of 12 cups each. Grady's Cold Brew is delicious, and it is sweetened with chicory, which I really, really enjoyed. It is great with oat milk, goat milk, whole milk, skim milk, almond milk. If you like cold brew coffee, I'm sure you'll like Grady's. Again, please use the dopey code dopey25. It's at gradyscoldbrew.com. Check it out. I want to talk about a new podcast that has emerged from the deepest, darkest recesses of the Dopey Nation Facebook group. It is called Recovery in the Middle Ages. It is a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Nat is a 40-something married father of two who has recovered from alcohol, heroin, crack, 
Coke, and just about every other drug under the sun. Mike is a married 50-something father of three that got into the crack scene in the Bronx in the 80s. Let the booze get away from him, and now he works on his recovery daily in between being a lawyer and leading his son's Cub Scout den. Brought together by their common struggle, Mike and Nat get to know each other's addiction story on the air and realize they have more in common than they could have ever imagined. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew... Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and MiddleAgesRecovery.com. That's MiddleAgesRecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the Dopey Nation. The brave, the true, the loyal, the loving. The Dopey Nation. Through the power, passion, and pathos of the Dopey Patreon account. You go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast, kick down a few bucks, get a few benefits. Kick down two bucks, get extra four, it's not even three, it's four extra dopey Patreon episodes a month. Kick down five, come to the dopey Patreon Zoom. For even more value, you kick down ten bucks, you get the bonus episode 30 days in advance, plus dopey stickers, but most importantly, you're helping support the show and you're helping make it possible for me to do Dopey full-time, which is the dream, and I appreciate everybody who supports it so far. So it's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Also, if you want Dopey gear, I am partnered up. Dopey is partnered up with a brilliant company out of Cincinnati, Ohio, called SRO Prints. They are recovering heroin addicts, and we are making really cool Dopey gear uh, hoodies and crew necks and t-shirts and long sleeves and tank tops and mugs. Go to www.dopeypodcast.com and check it out. Also, I have stickers. I have dopey snapbacks. I have Oyve snapbacks. Just Venmo me. I am behind on shipping because of the whole kerfuffle around the election. But now that that's all over, I am shipping this weekend. So look for your stuff soon. Also, I work at the most famous deli in the world. It's called Katz's. Their pastrami and corned beef are the best in the world. Their brisket is amazing. They gave me a chance for dopey listeners to save 10%. So go to katzesdelicatessen.com. Use the code dopey and save 10%. Enough with the fucking ads already. Here is the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm fortunate enough to be joined by the great Ray Brown, who hates to have his name in the description of the episode, because, see, everyone wants you, Ray, to be the new co-host of the show, and you're too embarrassed for me to write your name in the fucking description (laughs) of the show. And why is that, Ray? Because I'm, uh, it's... 
I'm secretive and anonymous. That is not why. You let me say your full name on the show. Say why it is. I've been accused of ruining the show already. Forget that. That's not what I'm looking for. Why can't I use your name in the description of the show, I don't want somebody to Google my name and find Dopey Podcast. That's why? Yes. That's a lie. It's because his husband doesn't know he does the Dopey Podcast. Well... That's why. And other people. Me- and meanwhile, who's other people? Your um, mom, my, your sister. My sister, yeah. Um, but it's really all about your husband. Well, if you want me to be on the show, then you have to abide by these rules. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Have I ever put your name in the description? No, but like... But don't you think it's interesting that there's this new Ray Brown lobby out in the Dopey Nation asking for Ray Brown to be the official co-host? You're asking me for money. They're asking... Venmo me. (laughs) They're asking... uh, They they say they need Ray Brown. Ray Brown is too secretive to to exist as the permanent co-host. Okay, I'm not the permanent co-host. Ray Brown is also the Groucho Marx of Dopey, which is Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx famously said, "Any club I oh. am invited to, I would not want to be a part of." And I have a feeling if I said, "Would you want to be the permanent co-host?" I of already Dopey? said no. So that's no. No, I like doing it like this. You is, like being laissez-faire. Yeah, and and uh, uh, Amy comes in, Aurora comes in, and I can like come and go. I can. Go wherever I want and not be on the show. He stresses the word "come" more than come. "go." <laughs> um, listen, because I told you I was going on a, a trip, and you're like, "How am I going to do the show?" I'm like, "Why do I have to be on the show?" Wow, it's a real turn of events right here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, I like I have to be here every week. Like I'm a free man. You are a free man. I'll say that Ray, you make the show better. I'm pleased you're here. You're an amazing co-host for Dopey. I don't think I want to do it every week. You and I would start fighting. We're already fighting. You should have seen what Ray did today. Oh, my God. Today we have... I think you just called me a fucking asshole. When? Just before we started. Well, you're doing ruining the show before we started the show. You were doing doing all sorts... He was doing shtick without being on the show. And doing shtick without being on the show takes the shtick away from the I show. I was trying to look up Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I couldn't find it. But it was and, very funny. And you said, like, you're a fucking asshole. I'm like, I can't Google something. But that's not why Ray is a fucking asshole, really. Ray's, Ray's not a fucking asshole. Ray's a, a wonderful person. However, I've been asking Ray to listen to the interview of today's show for, like, three weeks or something crazy. I listen to it. Every day. Ray, did you listen to the interview? Ray, and he's like, no. And he's all like excited about not listening to the interview. And then this morning at fucking six in the morning, I'm like, Ray, don't forget to listen to the interview today. And I go meet Ray and we're walking uptown. And I said, what'd you think of the interview? And he said, I didn't listen to it. (laughs) But my mind is going. I really have to put a reminder on my phone because you said, meet me downstairs in 25 minutes. And I immediately put a reminder to do that So an alarm went off That's, that's what's happening With me Well So it's, it's yeah, He turned 60 Ray's, Ray's on his way out Instant Alzheimer's Instant Alzheimer's Just <laughs> Just Carnation add, instant Alzheimer's Just add Cum <laughs> Gross So I had a revelation Today What happened? I just Was I, I mean lately I've been working My fucking fingers To the bone On this Fucking DopeyCon 2, you know, yeah. going crazy. Um, and it's, you know, 
Dopey Nation. Yeah, I, I feel guilty sometimes because all I do is fucking show up here and forget and shit. do this and forget to do shit. And then Dave is just like running around like a madman out there in Sayville doing the Patreon, doing DopeyCon and How about work? printing t-shirts and work and all that. And taking care of the family. Taking care of a family. Dude, like forget that. The other day, like I'm like literally like taking care of customer service for Katz's, fucking making dinner, unpacking groceries, washing dishes simultaneously. And I call up Ray and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm looking through the files on my computer and racing ones I don't want on there anymore. And I'm, I'm planning a cross-country train trip. Yeah, I think I'm going to spend 70 hours on the train to get to New Orleans. And it's like, I, if I, I just, I so miss doing nothing time. Oh, my you God. come over to my apartment. Dude, I, I was talking to somebody about COVID and like that was my opportunity to do nothing. When I had COVID, I should have quarantined and get like the, a week alone, a week of I solitude. remember that. You didn't get to do that. No, Linda's like, sorry. You got to clean the house. I, no, I just, I had to, I was engaged that week and uh, I want nothing time. I get nothing. But the revelation I had, and uh, maybe it should be known all the time, but the Dopey Nation is quite an amazing community. Oh, yeah. And uh, it amazes me. That it exists. It amazes me that it, it, you know, the Dopey Nation Facebook group has very little to do with the Dopey podcast. The Dopey Nation in general was a creation as a whatever. There's, a, there's so many people on Dopey Nation Facebook that don't know there's a podcast. Right. And then there's so many people on Dopey Nation in Dopey Nation that don't know there's a Dopey Nation Facebook group. Yeah. So, like, that's fine. But the point is that the community is an incredibly uh, tight-knit community, and I'm just super psyched in general that, um, that it happened. You know, when you see somebody post on Facebook, Dopey Nation Facebook, hey, guys, I'm having trouble, it's like that's one of the most amazing things. Like everybody like, does whatever they can. I've seen that over and over again, which is that's amazing. It's a, it's it's very very cool and um you know like I'm I feel very humble about like the fact that it came out of the show but I also feel like proud. So I'm very 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 excited uh about the interview so I want to get to it quickly. Um and Ray now heard the interview. It's Don't, a great interview. So you understand. Yeah. Ray was like we're at the taco store and he's like I could just say it was a good interview. And you're like no you'd be lying to the dopey nation. Like how dare you think that that's okay? <laughs> Don't you understand no, I, now? I said just tell me what he said in 5 minutes. You're like fuck you. I got very upset, very emotional. But now that you've heard it, don't you understand? It was worth it. Was it really? Yeah. Okay, so this guy's name is Ivan Neville. He's a legendary uh musician, performer, and, uh, and drug addict. And I was very, very fortunate enough. You know how I got him on the show? Oh. And this is what I was talking about with the Dopey Nation. The Dopey Nation is like, I have friends in the Dopey Nation, people I never would have met otherwise. Right. Somebody knows Ivan Neville. One of them is a true blue, hardcore, dopey fan, music journalist, writer, and podcast host in his own right, the legendary B Gets. Oh. You know B Gets? No. What B wants, B Gets. So, like, he can say to Ivan, hey, do you want to do this? But if you cold called Ivan, he 
wouldn't take your call. I don't know if he would take my call. B Getz does a, a podcast called The Up for Life, which is mostly about music. And uh, he's in this whole psychedelic jammy band in scene. In New Orleans. Well, he's in Northern California. And I think some of the dumpster funk people are out there and... B gets is just embedded, and he reached out to Ivan's manager and hooked the whole thing up. So big thanks to B gets. And I did something I don't usually do, which was start the recording before the interview started. So we're going to join my conversation with Ivan in midstream when I was kind of telling him about Dopey. So here's Ivan and me. It was like a lesson, but at the same time, uh, the audience loved my friend. His name was Chris, and. Uh, they stuck around, and the, the you know the show This American Life. Uh, they did a big piece about us, so the audience grew, and the show's basically the same, just with more recovery and, and a little bit more right, right. like of a lesson. Less war stories, less war stories and shit. I mean, the stories. I, I, we'll, we'll talk about that. I mean, I can tell you my opinion about some of that, you know, that that aspect of stuff, and I, and I'll tell you uh, for me how you know what, what's cool about telling some of those uh, insane stories about shit we did. Because um, there's reason there's reason to tell that stuff sometimes, you know? Absolutely. I mean... But when the, when the focus becomes too much on that, then it could be, you know, gonna mix it with some... Mix it with some solution as well. So, yeah, that's always my, my, my kind of take on it, you know, or my kind of, you know, uh, compromise with, you know, telling war stories and just slip some solution in there as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, when we started the show, I had four months clean. So like, I was like, there's no way I want to talk about recovery. You know what I mean? This show has to be about drugs, addiction and dumb shit. That's the show, you know, and, but now like I just celebrated five years and I understand now, like why putting recovery into the show and also just about like that a psychic change is real and like all the right, possibility right, right. you know what i mean like like the yeah. fact that there's limitless possibility is the coolest thing right absolutely absolutely so, so let me do a proper introduction because i'm incredibly excited to have you uh on the all phone right. uh this cool. guy his name is ivan neville he is from the legendary neville family of new orleans i'm a crazy funk soul fan so to have you on the show is uh, incredibly special to me. So thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And Ivan played with some amazing artists. He played uh, with, obviously, with the Neville Brothers. He played with the Meters, who I love. He played with uh, Keith Richards, who I love. The Rolling Stones, Bonnie Raitt. And now he's in this big-time jam funk band called Dumpster Funk. And welcome to Dopey, Ivan. All right, all right. Thanks for the intro. Thanks for calling Dumpster Funk a big time band, dude. It's a big <laughs> time. It's cool. a big time. Is it, is it not a big time band? No, it is a big time band. But when you when you went from the, from the other people that I played with, and then you built it up, Dumpster Funk and this big time band he plays with now, that was pretty cool. No, but I mean, like, yeah. I'm I'm a big fan. <laughs> like, I'm a fan of like the hippie scene. Although I'm like away from it, and Dumpster Funk is a huge jam band in in the scene. So, like, I think that's absolutely. something. Absolutely, absolutely. I, hey, I don't mean to correct you. You 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 were right on point. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with yeah, you. You're right on point. Yeah, yeah. And like, I've been immersed in Ivan Neville <laughs> for the past 24 hours. So it's uh, great to have you on the phone. And uh, I love keyboards and funk. I love the Fender Rhodes. I love the Clav. Um, yeah. 
when uh, and and I was listening to you. I was listening to an interview with you in 1995 in the basement of SOBs, uh, saying that oh, you wow. saved up to get a Fender Rhodes at 15. Oh uh, yeah, I was yeah, I was fit yeah. So yeah, somewhere around there, yeah, around I was in tenth grade, something like that. Well, I did, and I but basically I had a I got a part time job after school, and my great one of my great aunts, my great aunt, we used to call her Auntie Cat, okay, Auntie Cat, who was um the Neville's aunt. It was she was I think she was the Neville's great aunt. Uh, or something like that because I think yeah yeah so she was my great great aunt and she co-signed for me I bought a friend of Rose and I paid for it with this part-time job I had paid the note I remember $99 a month I paid for that uh, first friend of Rose what a what a magical instrument right it's a magical yeah. I mean, the, the roads in the world sir man just magical those are good yeah what what yeah. what do you think? It's like there's a spookiness to it. Maybe the fact that it's uh, that it's still a you know like there's tines in it. What what do you think that gives it its magic? You know what? I really I really uh, technically I don't have an answer for you, but I, uh, I can I can say this: when you play those instruments, okay, when you play a Fender Rhodes, when you play a clavinet, Honer clavinet, yeah, yeah. when you play a Wurlitzer, when you play an organ, a Hammond organ whether it be a B3, C3, or, or an A100. Uh, those are types of uh, the organs. Those are different uh, Hammond organs. They're all this, kind of the same instrument, except they're in different furniture. Uh, they have different wood around them, so to speak. So basically, when you play those instruments, they feel a certain way. So you could take those same sounds and you could digitally try to reproduce them, which they are versions of those sounds, those instruments in a digital formatted keyboard. But when you play those sounds on a digitally formatted keyboard, it doesn't feel like the actual, those are the original instrument. And for me, when I play a Fender Rose, I play a certain way. I don't play the same way I would play a Wurlitzer. And I don't play, and I hear that sound and the way that instrument feels, I don't play the same way I would play a clavinet. Right. And the way that instrument feels and sounds, I don't play the same way that I would play an organ. So I play, I have a different, uh, when you, the way those those notes and uh, feel when you're playing those instruments, they feel a certain way. And it makes you express a different uh, little vibe, like a feeling. And that, yeah. So that's that's kind of that's why I have a clavinet when I play live. I have a, an actual Honer clav. I have an organ, a B three. Now I don't carry a Rhodes or a Wurlitzer on tour with me because an organ is heavy enough. Yeah. So an organ and a clav, and I have another keyboard that has some a, world, a, good, a decent Wurlitzer sound. And a decent road sound, and I just uh, get get by with that. Right. But those instruments, those vintage instruments, feel a certain way, and they make you play and hear certain stuff. And that's kind of that's kind of where that's at. And I, I'm like a very amateur musician, and I used to play in bands when I was younger. But as far as I could tell, if it was reggae music, if it was rock and roll music, if it was soul music, if it was funk music, you wanted a clav, a Hammond, and an electric piano. In the mix. That's how you knew you had a good band, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you grew up 
in New Orleans, basically in musical royalty, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm from the Neville family, and the Neville, the Neville family is New Orleans. I mean, when you think of New Orleans, the most a lot of people think of maybe the Neville brothers. Some, be, you know, I mean, we're one of the one of the, and there's many other musical families uh, that come out of New Orleans. The Marcellus family, sure, sure, the Andrews family, um, but we're one of them, and we're um, and so yeah, we. It's a special, a special thing to have come from that, you know, be a part of that, that uh, lineage. You know, that, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's exactly. amazing. That's the, that's the word I was looking. I'm for. I'm here to help. That's the word. That's the word I was looking for, and it just didn't come to me right away. So you said it, and I said that's the word I was looking for. There you go. Well, I'm here. I'm here. That's to why help. we talk. That's why we talk. That's why you communicate with your with your friends and you talk to people, and you know, you get you know. Yeah, it's it's to share. We work together. Absolutely, uh, I'm I'm a I'm a Jewish guy from Manhattan, and I was always drawn uh, to New Orleans. You know, like there was just something about it, just Dixieland and 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 the music and the the style and the warmth. I could just feel it from New York City. I could feel the warmth emanating out of New Orleans. You know, and uh, I actually got to go a few years ago. You know, and I was sober when I went. Um, what an amazing town to be from. Yeah, New Orleans is a cool thing. Um, you know, that, that was a, over the years, and I, I mean, from the beginning, when I, when, I, when I stepped out on my own, so to speak, and I, and I left New Orleans for a while, and, I, and I, I, um, I ventured out into Los Angeles and to New York and, and other places and, and, and uh, started, uh, you know, collaborating with different musicians from all over the place. One of the coolest things to when somebody asks you where you're from and you say I'm from New Orleans, the res, the response you get and the, the look on their face and everything you can tell oh wow this guy's from New Orleans. It's very cool being from New Orleans. I get it. That was and then you're a musician, so damn if you could if you're from New Orleans and you could play a little bit, you got a little bit of talent. You know that's that's something else. So you know it, it's. It's a cool thing, man. New Orleans is, is an amazing place, especially uh, to be uh, born and raised in New Orleans. Now, yeah. Now, one thing that I was thinking about when I was there, you know, because I was there, I was newly sober when I was there, and uh, and the vibe, the party vibe, was very much, you know, in the culture. And I wondered about addicts and alcoholics in New Orleans, you know, in and out of recovery, like how. Is the program strong? <laughs> is the program strong in New Orleans? Like, what's yeah, it like? Pro- yeah. Okay, the program is very strong in New Orleans. Now, let me let me preface that to say, to tell you this. I did not get sober in New Orleans. Right. I don't know that I would have been able to get sober in New Orleans okay. back when I did get sober. I had moved around. I had moved in Los Angeles. I moved in New York, back to New Orleans. Back to New Orleans. By the way, when you were talking about that interview I did at SOBs in New York, yeah. that was around ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. I was yeah, I was lit lit like a Christmas tree during those times. And I had I had uh, moved to New York from Los Angeles, brought my addiction with me. And <laughs> you know when you do geographicals and you think you're gonna. Things are gonna get, you know, you, I'm, things are so so messed up, or 
uh, fucked up, whatever, I'm going to move into another city. Try, you know, and, but the, the problem is you are going there. <laughs> yeah. So eventually you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, you again. I, would, I, I thought I was trying to get away from, from the city, the last city I was in. No, I was trying to get away from you. So when I was doing that interview in, in SOBs, I remember... Being at, I remember that that place was on Houston, Varick or something. Yeah. Varick and uh-huh. dude, I I was so deranged during those days, and you know it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, it was it was and then I ended up moving back to New Orleans, and then I went back to Los Angeles around ninety six, ninety seven. I ended up getting sober in ninety eight. Okay, so I'm 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 in my I'm in my twenty. 22nd year Well congratulations That's, that's and, awesome Well no actually I'm in my 23rd year I turned 22 I turned 22 August August 14th Of this year Amazing Yeah so I'm in my 23rd year But yeah dude uh, I don't know that I would have Ever been able to get sober In New Orleans At the time When I did I was heavy I was I was pretty fucked up And And went back to Los, I moved back to Los Angeles Which I had been I had seen now, I didn't move back to L.A. to get clean. I just was running away, running for myself once again. And I went to L.A. and I ended up um, at some, um, and then we could talk about, I could tell you some war stories that preceded my, and you know, when I ended up getting sober. But in um, the, the AA, the, the well, not the programs, the 12-step uh, programs that they have, um, uh, it's pretty strong. LA has a pretty strong twelve-step uh, community. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of meetings, and there's a lot of attraction about the meetings because you're, you know, you if you're a musician and you you still want you still want to try to be cool. You know, I don't want to become a dud and get. But when you're going to meetings in LA, was really important in my early sobriety because. You know, it was uh, you saw musicians, fellow musicians, and some that you maybe looked up to, and some that you even maybe admired, clean and sober. And then you you saw actors and people in the entertainment industry, and that was very attractive to me. If I would have been in New Orleans at that time, they didn't. I mean, New Orleans is a strong sober community, but it's not like that. So you, it's, it's more meat and potatoes, you know, which I had. My strong meat and potatoes meetings in Los Angeles that I went to on a daily basis, but that that element of attraction is important when you're new, totally. as well as as well as hearing some of the war stories when you're new. When you hear people talk about stuff that you can relate to, and I, and I don't want to fast track to that, but when you we were talking earlier before before um uh. Either, you know, uh, before we started doing, the, you know, doing the recording, you know, doing the podcast, thing, we were talking about war stories and stuff. And when I was new, hearing people say shit that I'm like, oh shit, I did that, I'm, you know, and laughing about it and all that, that was very important to me, you know, that was very important to hear. Well, that that was like the the whole mission of the show was to tell stories that you knew addicts would laugh at. But, no, yeah. but maybe nobody else would. But we no, would we laugh. laugh you know? We laugh at some of the sickest shit that you can imagine. I mean, we laugh at stuff that other people cringe at. They're like, really? <laughs> you think that's funny? Yeah. 
I remember like when I was watching that interview with you at SOBs, right? Around that time, I had gotten a job producing a little TV show in New York, and I was constantly at SOBs interviewing my heroes. You know what I mean? I interviewed Gil Scott Heron there. I interviewed the Congos. I interviewed uh, Mandrill. And I was fucking all fucked up on heroin for every interview. So I'm nodding off talking to my legends, my heroes, and it just... Oh, my God. So when I see you, you know, in, in the interview, you said you were you hadn't had a drink, but maybe you were fucking high on well, coke, no, right? me, no, well, no, it's possible that I, I had... Well, I started going to, to treatment centers in 1989, and I went to... I went to... I ended up... I, I went to six treatment centers the, 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 before I got clean and soap. Right. So I had periods during in the uh, between 1989 and 1998 when I did get clean and sober. But I had periods during that nine or ten year period where I had two months, 60 days here and there. I might have gotten the most I ever had was six months once or twice. And I was, you know, was trying. I was trying. You were, you were promoting so, your record, Thanks. And I think you were I, sober. You were super I excited. I was trying to be sober. Yeah. I maybe had gone to rehab one more time. I ended up getting fucked up very soon thereafter there. That was it probably, <laughs> yeah, I was pretty lit during that time. So I really, I remember going, I am 95. I might have had a couple of days. Maybe I don't even know that I was actually really clean and sober. I might have had a few days. During that time, but yeah, I might have might have caught me on a good day when I had a little. I had went, I had gone too far once again, and I had to clean up for a week or so, you know. Well, yeah, and as a musician, though, like the, you know, I, I personally like when I look back at my own using, like I never really could describe it as partying for me because I just wanted to get really high and get away from myself kind of thing. But I was never a professional musician touring, you know. Right. So like I know that. The partying, celebrating, imbibing is built in to to concerts and to music. Like, when does it go from a good time to not a good time? Oh yeah, that, <laughs> that's that's a good. Um, that's definitely a good thing to talk about. Uh, you know, it, at some point, and I mean, I had a blast. I had I had fun times. I had many fun times, but there was a certain point where the consequences and the the darkness of it all seemed to outweigh the fun. Um, and that was not, I mean, once I started going to, 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 uh, to rehab the treatment centers, that absolutely put a damper on everything. Because not only when I, when I fucked up, and got and you know did some stupid shit or stayed up too long or partied and went on a binge and, and was late for something or missed an engagement or something like that. It was like those. The, I, I I knew deep down that you know what this shit ain't right. I knew that you know there's an actual there's there's another way I could be living my life. I saw that when I went to some treatment centers and went to a few meetings. I knew other people that had done similar shit that I did and was, had got had gotten their lives together and were now had been sober for quite a while. And so I knew. Right. And that that 
hurt. That hurt me as well. That my soul felt kind of sick at right. times. And and then it also got to points where you just knew. You just knew the shit. This shit's not that fun anymore. My your whole you you, you you're kind of a you're a musician who dabbles in drugs and alcohol, and then you become a dope fiend alcoholic who dabbles in music. Right. Basically, that's basically what it is. And then you, your consequences and your heartache and your soul sickness takes over. And that's the majority of the time, that's where you're at. You're not in the fun times. Like you might start out getting loaded and you might be somewhere in a nice, you know, Four Seasons hotel, you know, and you got some money in your pocket and you're doing all right. At some point, I will I will end up in the projects somewhere or in the worst part of town, wherever I am, in some skank-ass room somewhere with some people I likely don't know, you know, doing smoking crack, doing some dumb shit, you yeah. know? And, I, you know, I mean, that kind of shit. And so you... It, it, you you know you know deep down that you know what this shit ain't right, but you can't stop and you can't you, unless unless you get the help you need and do the things that you're told that will help you to recover from this shit. If you don't do that stuff, you 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 won't you won't recover. You won't recover. You will you will keep going back. Like I did for like eight, nine years. I kept, I would go to treatment. I would stay clean for maybe 90 days, maybe 60 days. Like I said, I had six months, maybe twice during that period. And eventually I would get loaded and then I would stay loaded for the, for another year and a half or so. Then I'd go back to, to treatment. And that's what I did. And, and once I did that, once, once that something got in, seeped into my, my brain, into my heart and soul, that you know what, there is a solution. And I do know people that are musicians as well and have done some of the same shit that I did and look at their life. Their lives are much better than, they, you know, they've improved on their, their, their quality of life and all of that shit. I knew there was another way to try to live. And so that even made it it, 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 it was it was never fun really again, because I knew inevitably I would maybe have fucking five minutes of fun, if that, and then I would, it would be fucking dread. It yeah. would be just horrible. Right. And that's kind of where, 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 it, where it went. I mean, and once you cross this certain line, invisible line or whatever the fuck it is. It's just not fun. It won't be fun anymore. And the thing that people and like and, and there's some fucking stories in there that will have you laughing your ass off. But the thing about it is, you if you if you don't find, come to that place where you stop your digging, your hole, you know, like the bottom. You know the concept of a bottom. Totally. That shit. You know, your bottom is when you stop fucking digging. Now you could end up in jail. That's a good bottom, right? Or you could end up damn near your OD or you're almost dead. Gee, that's the bottom, right? right. <laughs> Any lower than that, you might be fucking dead. And it's dumb, um, right, exactly. You could be put out your house or you get thrown, you know, you fucking lose you know, everything, your family. All of those are many different bottoms. And that soul sickness that you feel while you're in the throes of that shit, at some point... You're going to read you if you're lucky and blessed. I don't know. Is a little luck involved? A little, obviously, God's grace, I like to call it. 
that at some point you might get an opportunity to fucking change and you better you better fucking jump at it. And it might be the one that might, and you might not be at your absolute worst. Like myself, when I got clean and sober, I was not at my absolute worst. I had been worse off than that before. What was the worst you got, Ivan? Let me hear the worst bottom. Well, the worst I was ever at was when I was living in apartments in in Los Angeles, and there was gang members, drug dealers, hustlers, all kinds of fucking unsavory characters that were at my fucking, in my apartment 24-7. Well, I would, my apartment had become a fucking crack house, pretty right. much. And this is this is back in the late 80s, early 90s, like 1990, 1989, run up in there. And that was the dark, that was one of, that was some of the darkest shit that I had to deal with. I mean, I was like, that was, I was in fucking, I was in danger a lot of, on most days. Physical danger, in, obviously your soul yeah, was, I was fucking in, my, no, Yeah, I, was, I could possibly go to jail at any point. During these times, or I could fucking lose my life, all kinds of shit. But I did that. That didn't stop me. And I ended up when I was living in New York. I lived on the Upper East Side. Now you from New York, so you know I lived on 83rd and York. Yeah, it's near where I went to and high school. Actually, I lived right off. There was a fucking little a little store on the corner, and I lived in that block. There was some um some what they call them uh, 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 railroad apartment brownstones nice fucking nice apartments and I lived in one of those but I was a fucking uh, drug addict and I would I would go up to Spanish Harlem and score crack and shit like that every day or you know whatever and I I was that was my life now during that time I was when I was playing music because there were periods where I wasn't doing shit. I had a regular gig that I would play at some place. There was a place called Ruby's, Ruby's Roadhouse. Sure. On 2nd Second Avenue and, and 93rd Street or somewhere up over there. And I used to play this regular gig. And I would show up there. I'm so fucked up. And I would, oh, I, and, and I, and dude, I owe this, the guy that owned this place, God rest his soul. I think he passed, passed away a long time ago, but I was so far advanced with pay from playing there. I would get advances to go score drugs and shit. By the time I would play a gig for him, I owed this guy money and he would still pay me, you know? And I went through that. I moved back to New Orleans, and I was. And every time I was, like I said, I was running for myself. I had, and there's some other shit that I probably that I won't, you know, talk about. But there was some dark, lots of darker shit that I had to um, experience when I was in New Orleans. I mean, I did some of the stupidest shit you can imagine. I did. I mean, I, one. Okay, this is a fun. This is some funny shit. I'm gonna tell you. A story. Please give us one a good time, story. Yeah. One time. One time. So me, there was these two guys, you know, and I can say that I'm going to say there, I'm going to say there, one of them's passed away. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't have to say, I'm going to say their names, but they were from my neighborhood. And this is in the, this is in the nineties. This is around 96, 1996. And I had been up smoking crack for maybe a day and a half or so. And I went into these two guys and one of the guys Okay, his name his name was Monroe. Right, his name was Monroe. They called him Monrock. Was his nickname Monrock? All right, he he he's the kind of guy that if you went to his house, his electricity might be off. But he was he would come from a family of, of uh, mechanics, and they, uh, he always had a cool car. He was able to build cars and shit like that. Right, but he was a crackhead. But he would have no electricity in his house. 
and he would have his car sitting outside with the fucking lights on, and that would be the light. Some shit like that, or they, or there'd be some candles, you know, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, and then, you know, the type of person you know, they have a refri- uh, the refrigerator, and I know um, by just because I had this many times, a refrigerator with nothing in it but fucking a bottle, a box of baking soda in your fridge. That's it. All you got. Um. So anyway, I'm 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 I'm, all, I'm been up for maybe a day and a half. I run into these two guys, Monroe and this guy Jesse. And I had known them from, I knew them from my neighborhood from when I was a, when I was a teenager. And they were also fellow crackheads. And they were on the hustle, ready to go try to make the next move. So I had, I had, I had some checks. I had a checkbook. Now, I had no money in this particular bank account. I had not a fucking dime in there, but I had checks. So we got into, Monroe was driving around in a mint condition, I swear to God, mint condition lime green fucking um lincoln continental he okay. always had a car he always had a cool car yeah. now he's a crackhead but he comes from a family of um, um mechanics like i said he was always able to do that and he had a car a cool fucking car and a very not very was not very in, in, inconspicuous you know what i'm saying it was yes. like oh who do look at these motherfuckers riding around? Here he you know, comes, right? Lime, lime green Lincoln Continental. <laughs> so we're in his we're in his car riding around. It's probably nine ten in the morning, and we're we're grown men now. We're fucking grown men, crackheads, and we're figuring out what's the next move to get some crack. Now I was too much of a wimp to be a hard a criminal. I wasn't going to go take anything from anybody. I I stole some shit here and there, but we would find I would find some some stupid scam. So I had checks. So I'm going to go to this drugstore, particular uh, chain of drugstores in New Orleans, and I'm going to go and I'm going to write a check and I'm going to go and buy a case of beer or maybe two cases of beer, a couple of cartons of cigarettes, and I'm going to get maybe 20 or $30 cash on top of that when I write the check. Get your change. I got you. They give me my change. So they're going to give me the two cases of beer, a couple of cartons of cigarettes, and... Twenty thirty dollars over over that, and that's when I and that that was the first little hustle. And so we get back in the car, we got the beers, we got the cigarettes, and we go. He and Monroe knows some people that have some mom and pops grocery stores. So we go to the mom and pops grocery store. Monroe goes, we pull the car over. He walks in there in the store with the fucking cases of beer, the cartons of cigarettes, and he comes out with like fifty bucks. Add that to the twenty or thirty that we got yes. on top of the, the purchase. You got seventy, seventy-five dollars. So we can go buy seventy, seventy-five dollars worth of crack between the three of us, and we're gonna ride around in the car, pull over somewhere, smoke it, take it, hit the crack in the car, mind you. We don't, we not, we're not going. <laughs> You're not going to the spot. You're staying. In no, the every car. now, and, every now and again, we may have lingered in a spot where we were scoring, and they come on in, and we go take a hit. But we were mostly in camped out in this fucking car, mobile. And then we. The funny thing was when you when we initially scored the crack. And then you take the hit. The first thing you want is a beer and a fucking cigarette. But we've sold all the beer and all the cigarettes. We <laughs> yeah. just had a case, two case, two cases of beer, two cartons of cigarettes. I just took a hit. I want a beer and a cigarette. They're all gone because we just fucking sold them. Yeah. So that was that was fucking hilarious. Yeah. So then, so then we we run out, we run out in coke, and then we scrape in the fucking pipes. And one, you know, one one person got a, a a little straight shooter that's fucking two inches long because it's broken. Nine times and ten times. Somebody's got a fucking antenna with a fucking with some shore boy scraped in it, and that's the you know uh, and a broken off antenna. That you're using that for a pipe, burning your fucking lips, you know that yes. kind of shit. 
And so we so we run out of shit. We got to say, okay, we got to get more money again. I got checks. I'm going to another store. We're going to do the same thing again. I'm going to take one of these checks and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little bit more to try to get $40 this time over the amount of stuff we buy. And then, you know what, let's make sure we keep some beer and cigarettes this time. And I buy, I get two, three, I get three cases of beer and three cartons of cigarettes and get $40 over the amount of the check. And we do it this again. He goes to the mom and pop store. Now we thinking we should keep some beer and cigarettes, but no, if we separate a beer, that's not going to be a full case. If we take a pack out of the carton, that's not a full carton. Right. We need to sell this stuff to get the money to get the crack. So we, he goes to another mom and pop store. We sell all this stuff, comes out with the money. We go score some crack. You take a hit. You want a beer and a cigarette. We don't fucking have any. Once again. <laughs> yeah. You know, so this happens until finally I go to a store and I go to do the same shit one more time and I give him the check. And then the guy says, could you wait here for a minute? And he goes in the back of the store and I leave. That's his it. The check, this is over. We can't do the check. He's about to go call the cops on me. Yeah. They've, they've uh, you know, they've uh, figured out something about these checks at one of these stores, so now that's that's over. So now we have no more checks, we have no more money. What's our next scam gonna be? So now we're fucking riding around, somebody's uh, in the back seat, fucking almost bent down on the floor, you know, almost on the floor, scraping their little pipes. Um, somebody's in the passenger seat, you know, it, it was fucking insane. We're sweating, we're fucking swearing in New Orleans. I'm thinking it's fucking, you know, mid-spring, summertime, we're fucking <laughs> hot. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know what? If I'm serving me correctly, his fucking air conditioning didn't work in his car. Some shit like that. It's a nice looking car. Yeah. Very inconspicuous, like I said. But now we're riding around. What the fuck do we do now? Right. We happen to be riding up, up, up at a point of, uh, in New Orleans. It's called the River Bend. It's where, they, where the levee, the levee turns and curves, and it's uh, it. it, it so we riding up here uh, in that little area of New Orleans, and we see a lady with a sign. And this, uh, this white lady had a sign that said, missing dog, reward, reward <laughs> to find my missing dog. Yes. We saw that shit. One of us hopped out the car and said, man, and we said, get a description of the dog. We got a description of the dog. We got back in the car. We were riding around this fucking neighborhood looking for this dog. Now your dog we find yes. No, we find a dog that looks... That fits this description. We chase the fucking dog in the car. The dog runs toward the river to the to the levee. The levee, you know what a levee is? A levee is like a hill. Yeah. They got these hills that's right between. It's like they got a train track and there's a hill right before you get to the actual river in New Orleans, Mississippi, the Mississippi River, to be exact. We just dogs runs up toward the fucking river. We hop out the car. We, the three of us, we chasing this fucking dog. And then we see, oh, this is the dog. We're going to go get this money from this lady. Catch this fucking dog. And we're like the three of us, you know, this dog's trying to get away from us. We fucking, we're deranged out of, we're fucking out of our mind. We've been smoking crack on and off for, you know, for two days. Myself and these guys were fucking insane. We catch the fucking dog. We put the dog back in the car. We drive over back to where we saw the lady. It's the wrong fucking dog. Uh. So, so obviously we kick the dog out the fucking car, and that's it. So that's the end. That's the end of that run. So check it out. So I go my way. We go our separate ways after that, and we had our little our little adventure. I'm gonna fast. I'm gonna flash forward to 1990. Yes. About 1999. Yes. I was about I was about maybe six months sober. Okay. 
and I'm I, and I'm back in New Orleans. Now I had moved at this point. I had went to Los Angeles, got to clean and all this shit, and I'm so I'm back at New in New Orleans at my mom's house, and my mom shows me. She says, "I don't know. Don't look at this, uh, this article in in the Metro section of the newspaper." And she, she don't you know these? Don't you know these people? Somebody in here. And there's a story in there, and it's about two guys that were arrested for um, burglarizing people's uh, uh, garages. They were stealing gardening tools, and they had done a string of burglaries, and their names was Monroe Spurlock and Jesse Trice, the same two fucking guys that I was running yes. around with. And they somebody found a fucking lavender-colored of Cadillac, now yeah. it was a lavender-colored Cadillac parked a block from the police station with a brand new fucking weed whacker in the back in the back of the car, and that's how they uh, figured out. Okay, these might be the guys stealing these gardening tools, and they 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 caught one of them was coming out of a lady's back uh, alleyway with a fucking leaf blower. And they, the guy saw the lady and turned the leaf blower on like he was blowing leaves, and oh, the woman called the cops. These same two fucking guys were arrested for a string of burglaries and you, stealing gardening tools. I'm just, <laughs> you're clean, and you're like, holy shit, it's Monroe and Jesse. It's, yeah, yeah, the same two motherfuckers that we would find that lady's dog. Thought we had the lady's dog, or, you know, cashing the bad checks, all of that. Same two guys. So, those are the best stories when you like, yeah. you have your buddy, and it's not, you're not alone and soul sick, and there's still like a caper to it, right? There's still a great yeah, crackhead junkie caper. That's the best. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. You still, and you're still intrigued by that fucking lifestyle, which is totally insane. Well, that's like a movie. Yeah. The, the story you yeah. told is a movie. You know what I mean? It's these like, motherfuckers, I couldn't believe that these fucking same two guys, was, they had moved on to, they figured out a different scam, stealing garden tools for people's sheds. Yeah. A so fucking the, lavender, a la, I think it was a lavender, like a, obviously purple, a light purple Cadillac parked like fucking uh, a, a half a block from the police station with a, a, a brand new weed whacker in, in a box. The classic, the, the classic thing would have been if they had a dog. If they had a dog, <laughs> that would have been like over the top. Yeah. Let me yeah. ask you this though, right? You're fucking. <laughs> you basically like I, I'm. I'm also just like very interested in uh in your time with uh the expensive winos, right? I used to. Yeah. I used to wait tables at Katz's Deli in Manhattan. You know, Katz's, yeah. And uh, I, I still work there actually. But uh, I one day uh, Wadi Wachtel. <laughs> And Leland Sklar come in, right? And and, yeah. I, and I waited on Wadi a bunch of times, and uh, and he seemed like such a, a straight shooter. Um, yeah. But like playing with Keith and play, and hanging out with Keith and Ronnie in those days, like I mean, obviously it was a high time in general in those days. Yeah. Like almost was, definitely. Was it? Was there any sort of like? Separation between living high and misery. Like, when does it creep in in a situation when the success is such a high level, right? Hey, okay, I can tell you a quick story. I'm, I'm going to give you the short, abbreviated version of this story. Yes, sir. Okay, so one, okay, this is, I'm going to give you a, this is, a, uh, I'm gonna give you this is two short stories and one, and they, they relate to each other in a way. So, so check it out. So at some point in the early nineties, around 93, 94, 
I was I was in New York. I had I was living in New York, and then I was recording this record called Thanks. Yeah, and that was the that was this stuff when I was doing that stuff at yeah. the SOB yeah, yeah. and stuff. I was making that record around ninety three, ninety four. I was in the studio. I was at the power station, and I had uh, I had Keith and Ronnie come over and play some stuff for me uh, on for that record. And we were in there playing and stuff. And um, the funny thing was, <laughs> I had, um, you know, we have an unwritten rule or an unwritten uh, uh, thing that says, you play on my record, I play on your record kind of thing. Right. right? Like a cur- so professional Ronnie, courtesy, right? Professional courtesy. That's me and Keith. That's who, you know, we got that. So we, we're recording, um, doing some stuff for my record. And then that later that night, Keith was going into the studio to work on some stuff, some some uh, kind of early stuff that he was working on for the Stones, for uh, which, which was going to end up being Voodoo Lounge record. Right, right. So he, I was supposed to go and meet him at another recording studio later that night. After after we completed my session, that was our deal. Okay, you meet me over at that other studio. I'm going to be over there later. You come on by. So he, 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 we did up my session. Those guys left. Now I ended up scoring some crack, and I went home where I was living, and I was smoking crack. Now it's like two in the mo- two in the morning or something, and the phone rings, and it's Keith, and I was fucking lit out of my mind. I answered the phone, and I'm like, and that's it's Keith, and I was like, uh, I'm like, hey man, where where are you? And he says, and he says, he says. I'm where the fuck I'm supposed to be. Thanks a lot, pal. And he hung up the oh, phone. So, you know, I felt like a piece of shit. I'm supposed to be over there with him playing and recording with this, you know, fuck, you know, my friend who's a legend. And you know what I did? I fucking dropped whatever pipe I had in my hand or whatever I was doing. I said, you know what? I mean, maybe get my, get my shit together. Let me try to clean up a little bit as best I can. I'm going over here. And I went straight over to that studio. And he was just sitting there looking, and he just laughed at me, you fucking asshole. And he, I knew that'll get you over here. And then I, I recommenced to doing whatever he wanted me to do over there, and we, you know, made some music or whatever. But that's the kind of shit you would do, and the kind of relationship you have with someone, you know, uh, who's that important to you, and who's that important to music. Period. You know, fucking Keith, man. So I'm going to fast forward to a, a, a while after that. I ended up playing on Voodoo Lounge record. I played on that, that record. I played and sang some stuff with, with, those, with the Stones. Amazing. And they were doing, they were doing uh, the tour, the Voodoo Lounge tour. I was invited to go and uh, maybe possibly sit in and play a song with the Stones at Giant Stadium, yeah. mind you. All right. So now at this time, this is around 90... 95 maybe when they were doing the Voodoo Lounge tour somewhere around there 95 possibly maybe 96 and I was in New Orleans and I said you know what I'm, I'm, I, everything was planned out Keith, Keith said hey man you coming up come up to uh, Giant Stadium and come and hang out and I'm thinking I'm gonna go hang out with Keith and them they're playing Giant Stadium I'm possibly maybe get to play a song with the stars you know that kind of thing yeah. so I'm gonna I'm gonna straighten up eat, eat a baked potatoes and <laughs> steak and kind of clean up for a couple of days where I'm somewhat legit, yeah. you know? And that's what I did. And then when it was time for me to go, I got on a plane and I flew up, flew to New York. A limousine picked me up, brought me to the Giant Stadium. And I went there and I got to the back to the dressing room. 
and there was the same, you know, the type of stuff that you would expect to be in, in the dressing rooms of, you know, that environment. And there was stuff, you know, there was, you know, that was offered to me. Sure. Some drink, some blow, whatever. And something in my mind said, maybe, Ivan, maybe you should eat something first before you partake in all of this shit. Yeah. And I did not. And I partook, I partook <laughs> in the stuff. <laughs> I did some blow. I started drinking like a fish. And then I started feeling really fucked up at some point. And I, it was a picture that was, that was, that was taken. I remember that was the last thing I vaguely remembered that I was somewhat coherent. I was introduced to Lenny Kravitz who had opened that show. He, he was the opening band for that show. And Ronnie introduced, Hey, this is, I, I mean, this is Lenny. And then me and Lenny, Ronnie and Keith took a photo, which I have a copy of this photo. Which I might, I'll send it to you. You can see the fucking look in my eyes yes. on this photo. Um, I make those guys look like choir boys, the way my fucking face, the way my eyes look. I took that picture and then I went after that. That's the last thing I really truly remembered, except I'm, I'm, I crashed out in the dressing room. And then by this time, I, I was told that I was gonna, you're gonna come up and play on such, such and such a song. I think the song was maybe Start Me Up. I was gonna go sit in and play on Start Me Up. Amazing. I fucking crashed out. I woke up. The show was over. You slept through it. I slept through it. Oh my god! Yes. Well, that's what we do, yes. right? We that's what I we slept do. through that. So imagine how I beat myself up about that. You know, I all but I. So I just got loaded at that. You know, I had to get so fucked up in the coming days, the weeks or so after that, because because depression was gonna sit in. Of how could you fucking blow it like that? You had an opportunity to go play with these guys, and you got too fucked up, and you fucking passed out. Right? Yeah. And, so. then, and then you you fuck up, and then you beat yourself up for fucking up, which is the oh, and I beat, and I got fucked up in the, in while I was part of the beating myself up was getting fucked up. You know what I'm saying? That's the pattern, right? <laughs> to over try to medicate again. medicate yeah. that guilt and all that shame, I just did more stuff. And then that was around 96, and I, got, I ended up getting clean and sober in 98, August 14th to be exact. And, um, yeah, that's the kind of <laughs> Dude, I, I, yeah, man. I, I really, really appreciate you dropping these gems. I have one more question before, before <laughs> yeah, I let come you on. go, which is like— the thing that I've learned, you know, and it's, ta you know, I, I basically use from, you know, around 23 to 41 and, you know, I fucked up over and over again. And my bottom was basically losing my family twice. You know, it took me forever to get anywhere. And, and the thing that worked for me finally was was desperation. And I never had God and I never understood like what a higher power could do. And I had a sponsor who would call God, G-O-D, his gift of desperation. And, uh, and I was like, that sounds good, because I was so desperate, you know? Um, what, what was it for you that made it finally click? You know, it's a, yeah, that's a good question, and um, I, I have to tell you exactly what happened for me, man. When I went to that, that sixth rehab center, now, now, I would, now I've got to tell you, I, was, I, was, I had a guy in my life, and God rest his soul, his name was Marty. Marty was my Eskimo and he was my first sponsor. Okay. Took me through the steps the first time. Um, I, I had known him for years. I'd known him. I had played in the band with this guy. We played together in Bonnie Raitt's band back in the early, in the early to mid-80s. And this guy had gotten clean and sober. Now, at this point, he was about 12 or so years sober. 
And there was a whole group of musicians that had got sober. He was one of them. He was himself. And uh, I think Steve Bruton was one. And I mean, the name dropping anonymity. I'm, you know, no, sorry I about you. your soul too. Steve Bruton passed away. But there were some others. There were some others. A group of people that had gotten sober around that time uh, together. So this, this guy was about 12 years sober. He come and got me. I, I knew his phone number. With, with all of the crazy shit in my, that was running around in my fucking head, I still remember this guy's phone number. And I called him up that fateful night. I said, come get me from this fucking, this place. I was at a, at a, at a, at a dope spot at a house that was a crack house. And that's where I was. And he come got me. And I went to that final rehab. Six, six one. I went to this place, man. I got to tell you, when I, when I woke up in there and, uh, you know, came to in a couple of, after a few days and I started getting some, you know, feeling somewhat coherent and whatnot. And I had already heard all the song and dance. I had already heard all the lingo at yeah. this point because I had been to, this is my sixth time in treatment. Yeah. And I had been to meetings. I had had 60 days a couple times. I had had 90 days. I had had six months. And this one, I, I knew the lingo and all the stuff they were saying, all the stuff they were telling me to do, write down and read and all this stuff. You know, they give you those books when you get in there, the 24-hour day book, the daily reflection, and they give you a big book and an NA book and all that shit. And you know what? I just started listening to them. And I just started doing what they were saying, I started, something started seeping in. Now, I don't, now, it didn't happen that when I got out of treatment, now, I, and I'm going to tell you, now, I, they didn't act, they didn't press on me about going to a sober living or anything like that, mm -hmm. but I was prepared, I prepared very fucking vigorously on my, on my, like, what they call it, your, uh, what they call it, your after, your aftercare program, mm -hmm. Right? And so I fucking had, I had, I had plans. I'm like, okay, I know eventually I'm going to have to go play music. Let me make sure I, I'm equipped with places to go to meetings and shit like that. Right. And I got, I got information and I got out of this place and I, and I started going to, I started going to meetings. Now you see, now I, that's why I commend anybody who gets 30 days clean and sober by going to meetings, I fucking commend you. I'm like, I'm like, congratulations. You know, it's so, such a big fucking deal. I could not get 30 days on my own. No. I had to be locked away some fucking way. Too. Some Me treatment too. Center. Yes. I couldn't get 30 days by just going to fucking meetings. I had to go in a place. Me too. For that 28 day or so program that they used to have. And then I'd get out of there and, 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 and bear through them two days and I'd get 30 days. Right. You know, so, I got out of this fucking treatment center, dude, and I went, I went hard, hardcore in the fucking, in the program. I was going to meetings, two meetings at least a day. Right. Probably for fucking two, three years. Right. I started doing the steps immediately. I started just doing this shit. And it was, it, it occurred to me at some point, I'm going to tell you, I felt, I had a feeling of relief. And of um, a feeling of that I was maybe blessed and that God's grace was going to pull me through. I'm going to tell you, I was at a meeting and it was a big L.A. meeting, big Hollywood meeting. It was called the Rodeo Group. Okay. And that was a big, big fancy meeting on Friday night where a lot of, you know, entertainment people and just everybody's fancy, good looking at this meeting. And it's, it's like maybe 200 people at this meeting, some shit like that. 
And I was about maybe just over 60 days sober, and I'm sitting in this meeting, and I had just, my sponsor had just, I think we had just recently done the third step. I had done the third step prayer, and I was supposed to embark on starting starting a fourth step. And I'm sitting in this meeting, and as a, as a, a, a middle-aged white gentleman, white, white guy was probably in his 60s, he was, he was the speaker at the meeting, and he shared that he was from Billings, Montana. So I'm sitting in this meeting saying, okay, this man, he don't know nothing about somebody like me, <laughs> right, right? Right. He has no fucking idea about a person like me. So I'm thinking, what am I going to get out of this guy's story? Am I, am I going to be able to relate to this shit? So I'm being defiant and being, you know, arrogant like we are and, you know, trying not to relate. And the guy says, and my sobriety dates. August 14th, 1969. I'm like, August 14th? That's my day. That's my, I'm the 14th of August. And he's August 14th, obviously a long time before 1969 or some shit. I was so, I don't fucking know how many years he was, 30, 30, 30 years or some shit at this point. Yeah. And, but, but something clicked when he said August 14th. That's my same day. August 14th. Mine, mine is and August 13th. That's, now, that's fucking crazy. Isn't See? it? Now, that makes the story even cooler, yeah, right? Yeah. So when he said that, something went through my body, man. It was like, okay, wow, this is cool. Now, I don't remember a whole, whole, lot, whole, uh, uh, whole lot else about his share except that thing there, August 14th. And that got me. And, I, and something in my, within myself... I, I felt like I mean, you, you're going to be all right. It's like a and cosmic. It's a cosmic assurance, right? It's yeah, crazy. dude. And so right after that, I I commenced to writing the fourth step, continuing going to meetings and all that shit. And then I did a fifth step, and I did the rest of the steps like we do. I started living this shit, dude. I went I went to fucking um. I started traveling again. I started playing. Uh, I was playing with this band called Spin Doctors at the time, and I sure. ended up going all over, all over Europe with these guys. And I was cleaning. I was cleaning sober. I remember going. I remember being in, in um, Portugal with these guys, and and I remember being at this. The, the promoter had a bar, a port wine bar, where they drank this fucking hundred year old port wine and insert cheese and shit. And I'm sitting there with the Spin Doctors, with my friends. And we're sitting there, and the guy's serving up all this fancy cheese and whatnot, and everybody's got their, their little wine glass with the port wine, and every time he comes to me, I say, yeah, give me another 7-Up. 7-Up with a twist of lemon, you know, twist of lime. And he's like, damn, you don't drink? I'm like, nah, I'm good. I, I don't want it. You, you sure, man? I said, nah, I don't, I don't want it. And I finally said, no, nah, I, I had enough. He said, what do you mean? I haven't seen you drinking. I'm like, I said, sir, believe me. <laughs> Trust me, I've had enough. <laughs> yes. And that's kind of was my thing. And I've drank seven up while everybody's drinking port wine. And I'm fucking, I'm doing this deal, man. I ended up going to um, Germany on that same trip. And uh, it was right during Oktoberfest. And I remember seeing all these people dressed up in this Oktoberfest looking shit with their little shorts and the funny looking hats. Yeah, yeah. With big mugs of beer in their hand. And I went and found a meeting in Munich, Germany. I found a fucking air, a meeting in Munich, Germany, and it was speaking in German. And I'm just sitting there listening at them talk, and I don't know what the fuck they're saying, but I'm shaking my head, nodding in agreement with whatever the fuck they were saying. Because you knew what they were saying. saying. You knew everything. I'm in a fucking meeting. And then I looked up on the wall, and I saw something on the wall, and it said, it was said, G-O-T-T. 
And I'm thinking maybe that's the serenity prayer up on the wall. God, grant me, I'm thinking that. And I asked somebody that, well, that did speak, and he said, yeah, that's the serenity prayer. And things when I, and right at that moment, I heard some bells, church bells or something ringing in the distance. I'm like, what the fuck? Get this cool shit. Yeah. I started doing this, dude. And I, you know what? At some point, it occurred to me that, you know what? Um, one day at a time is the coolest thing I ever fucking heard. I said, like, you know what? You can do this thing. You can do this. And I felt as good as I had ever felt in my fucking, in my adult life. I felt as good as I had ever felt. No, I, I, and, I love that. And I, so I started gradually, gradually, gradually feeling kind of comfortable in my skin sometimes. And that's a work in progress because I'm, what, 20, I'm in my 20, 30 years sobriety and I'm still um, learning about that. And I'm feeling good. I'm feeling comfortable in my own skin sometimes. Not all the time, but for the most part, I'm cool. I'm cool with where I'm at, who I am. And I'm, I'm uh, remain teachable and and stay try to stay grateful, you know. Yeah. And that all oh, that shit just works. It makes you be able to fucking um, deal with this uh, human condition that we that we that we have to deal with. And feeling good sometimes, feeling bad sometimes, feeling great sometimes, feeling fucked up, something you know, uh, depressed a little bit sometimes, or a little off or down. All of that, but you take it all and, and, and it comes and you deal with it. And, 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 and I found out that feeling all this stuff is a part of life. And I, I'm, I'm glad to feel. I'm glad to feel when I have to feel sad, when I lose a loved one. I lost my mom in sobriety in 2007. Yeah. You know what? I went through what I went through. I felt what I felt. And I was glad and honored that I was able to feel what I felt, to feel the sense of loss and also the sense of beauty that, you know what, I, my mom was a great person and blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I found a way to find beauty in all of them. A little bit of beauty in the worst of times. And that, to me, is the fucking greatest gift of, of, of this journey, you know? Yeah, I think it's, incre- it's incredible because also as a musician, right, you're, and as especially a, a soul funk player from New Orleans, you're feeling the spirit, right? The spirit. Yeah, is in yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and it gets weighed down with all the substances, and then all of a sudden the substances are gone and you're feeling the spirit in this other way, right? Absolutely, man. How, how difficult is it to be the linchpin of a of a, a funk hippie band around all the using on that scene. is that difficult? <laughs> you know what? It, it's all right. It's fine. I'm, you know what? It's, I, I look at that like I did, I did so much stuff with, when I was doing what I was doing. Yeah, I've used up that card. I yeah. don't get to do that anymore. I had that backstage pass. I don't get that one anymore. And I had I had enough of. I had fun. I had fun. But my fun with that that world and that that route. Is, was ended so now I'm going to do this, this different thing so people power, more power to you I don't have anything against anybody that drinks or smokes weed or whatever the fuck they want to do totally. it's your business hopefully you can handle it well if you need help I'm here to help you or I'm here to point you in the direction of someone or some uh, something that could be of help but other than that I don't have anything against it right I just don't I don't get to do it I did it and it stopped working, and I don't get to do that anymore. Yeah. At, at the end of my run, I, 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 something clicked in my head that said, I'm never going to get higher than I was. 
There's nothing out no. there. There's no other you frontier. You'll, you'll get hired when you fucking get that, that death hit. Exactly. That fucking hit that exactly. takes your ass out. That's the one. That's the only one that's going to get you hired. Yeah. Is that one that takes your fucking ass out. Yeah. You're going to feel real good right before you feel nothing. <laughs> yeah, there it is. That, and that's hey. the end. Ivan, your generosity is, yeah. is, is just my so man. cool. Thank you so much, man. Thank really you very cool. much, man. My, my pleasure, man. An honor and a privilege. For my me man. as well. Have a beautiful hey, day. If, if there's Thanks, anything brother, I could too. ever do, please reach out, all right, man? All right, cool, man. Thanks, Thanks Ivan. Man. Have a good one. All right. Later. So with Melissa Phoebos, when I ended the interview by saying, if I can ever do anything to help you, or anything that was creepy. Was it as creepy with Ivan? Yeah, I noticed that it wasn't creepy at all with Ivan. I thought it was creepy. Oh, I, I found I, it. I found it. I say that to everybody. Like it's my it's my like being of service rap. Okay. Or be my friend. I Don't nev- you want to be my friend? Well, or I never noticed it until Melissa, and then I do it all the time. Do I have then, to stop doing? And it? then when you said it to Ivan, I thought that sounded completely normal. Interesting. Very. I, it, interesting. I really noticed it. I'm like. He said the same thing, and it didn't sound creepy. It's interesting. But Ivan Neville was, uh, was a joy, right? That was really cool. Sam listened to it, and Sam was like, finally uh, a guest who really speaks to the nature of crack without anything else. I thought he like explained things really well. I mean, maybe I just understand things better now, but he explained like a lot of like the low-down low crack being in whatever and then being like knowing about recovery but not, um, for, you know, not being recovered, but knowing the lingo, and then like going out, going going in and out. So you know about it, you know it's there, but you're in the throes of addiction. Like he described that stuff really well. He described a lot of stuff really well. Did you smoke a lot of crack, Ray, or no? No, I only smoked crack that one time. No, I smoked crack two times. Oh, in Florida, that was your only dalliance. That with was crack? the second time. I smoked meth. Yeah, I smoked a lot more meth than I smoked crack, but I thought. Uh, I just, you know... I smoked Quaaludes one time. What? What? Okay. Tell, tell us the story. <laughs> it was terrible. I smoked a joint, and after we smoked the joint, I'm like, I feel really weird. And the guy was like, yeah, I crushed up some lose and put them in there. I'm like, I wish you had told me that. I have, to ride, <laughs> I have to ride my bike to my parents' house for like a family reunion right now. You smoked lewds. That's funny. That's really funny. Um, Who gives somebody a joint and does not tell them that? That they, I, I never heard of anything like that. I have this weird memory that I had a period in my life where I had access to lutes, to lemons. They called them lemons, and and uh, and we would get them. But I, my memory is so spotty. I don't remember how or when. I know it was like in my twenties when I was working at the TV show that we would somehow get lutes shipped to us. I wrecked my parents' car on lutes. Lutes were great. You didn't like them? Well, I just always had bad experiences with them. I'm sure they were great. Everyone said they were. And Ivan is obviously like first class uh, keyboard player. You know, you can't ask for a a stronger pedigree. Yeah, I love that stuff. The Fender Rose and the uh, Wurlitzer, all that stuff. I mean, he knows his instruments. Like like that Dopey song I did, that's a Fender Rose. The the dope, which dopey song? The first one. Oh, you did it on a, you did it on a Rhodes sound. I have the Rhodes sound on my on a preset, and I did and this dopey con song. There's a fin, I put Fender Rhodes in everything, and a world like my album that I recorded a few years ago. I found a, we recorded it in Ireland, and then I wanted a different sound, and I found a studio in Brooklyn that had a Fender Rhodes, a Wurlitzer. They had a Mellotron. They had 
cloud. They had every classic instrument, and it came out sounding great. When I was a kid, I had a job on a boat called the World Yacht, and it was a restaurant. I, re- I remember that. It was a restaurant. It still exists. Yeah, yeah. And it was a restaurant that sailed around Manhattan. It's a party boat. It was a party boat, and I was like a food guy on the boat, and I fucking hated that job so much. Um, oh, God. it was. you want to hear something very embarrassing? Yes. There was... Uh, I worked with primarily Dominican people, and do you know what they called me? Jew? No, they called me Screech. <laughs> and it was... Though I was like... It's like, pick a name to call me it's that's going to... It just hurt me. It was so embarrassing. But there was a... There were terrible, like, they do weddings and shit on these boats. Yeah. And they, uh, they would have vans. And, uh, I've heard stories. I have friends that worked on that boat. They're like, they have, like, tons of people throwing up at the same time. I, what I loved about the, the, the job was I loved being on the water. I loved the night sky. And, um, and I loved, like, I would smoke cigarettes on the, on, the, on the deck and drink Cokes and shit and yeah. feel like... And I'd smoke weed on, on the boat and shit and get away from people. I remember, this is a really fucked up thing that, um, you know, I, when I was in high school, I was on MTV, and I was really tight with, uh, like, the president of MTV at the mm-hmm. time, when I was, like, 17 or yeah. something. And, uh, and, and everything, you know, the show, my friend and I were on, got canceled, and everything changed, and I'm working on the world yacht, and it's him. His name was Doug Herzog. Yeah. He's like a very, very famous TV executive. And I'm fucking ladling fucking beef <laughs> stroganoff onto his plate. And he's like, Dave? And it's like, yes. And that was before I was a heroin addict. Yeah, you just, you I, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, very quickly. But there was, uh, there was um, I remember also carrying a terrain or a terrine or whatever the word is of, of stew up the steps and the boat jumped. And I like dumped it on my, <laughs> on myself. Did you, have, did you have people fighting? No, no, I don't remember many fights. But the point of the story was that there was a keyboard player on the boat, and he played a Fender. Ro- or I went to talk to him, yeah. and he turned out he had a Fender Rhodes, and I bought it from him for three hundred bucks. That's cheap, and it was just an amazing instrument. And I had it in my apartment in Chelsea, and I I taught myself how to play piano a bit on it, and I lived for this instrument, and I. I like would get high on heroin and play, and I'd get high on it's so beautiful. weed what a beautiful, and play. And it was it it's was, so seventies too. It had the weighted keys, and like it was just like just the coolest thing. And I remember like as I sunk into my heroin addiction, I stopped playing it more and more and more. I would also I would also smoke cigarettes and let them burn on the oh. side of it. I remember when I tripped ibogaine, uh, and I lay on the floor. My foot was against the leg of the Fender Rhodes, and I was spinning. And the only way I knew I wasn't spinning was because I felt the Fender Rhodes. You were holding on. But I ran out of money, and I sold the Fender wow. Rhodes, even in terrible shape. I got a grand for it. Yeah, at I Rogue them, Music. I looked them up. They're like ten thousand dollars now. But uh, the, the yeah, exactly. And I had this. You know, they're like a Stratocaster. Like it's like a sixty-five Stratocaster. But it weighs like two hundred pounds. It's so so heavy. Um. Anyway, so having Ivan on the show was just immense. You know, the story about Keith and the Stones and all that stuff, it's, it's very cool. I and love that with Keith because when we were walking over here, I'm like, Keith was fucked up, but he was always together, and this guy was not. That was funny. Keith was like, where the fuck are you? 
Yeah, can you? It's like, and and imagine you're you're Ivan Neville, and you have this gig with Keith, and, uh, and you're the, you're, you're the, the fuck up, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so that was cool, and I, I feel like um, it just it, it's I love. Obviously, I'm a huge music fan, and I love that we got somebody like him on the show. You know, I played a gig with that Spin Doctors guy, Chris Barron. Yes, at was Sidewall like, Cafe. No way, really. Yeah. Yeah, because he's friends with Latch, and they like know each other from AA, I guess. He was so grateful to the Spin Doctors. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, what people in the program call a free lapse and what other people in the program call a relapse. What did you take? Well, I went to the dentist to have my crowns in. You got nitrous? And I got the gas. And I have to tell you, like, this is the kind of drug addict I am. I'm in the chair... He's giving me the gas, telling me that he voted for Trump and, and, and you know, talking about this, this or that. And I'm just like, turn it up, man. And I'm just like, I was sitting in this, this disgusting, squalid dentist office where, the gas. where you look at the ceiling and there's stains oh. on the ceiling. It's like you're not going to notice stains on the ceiling unless you're staring at the ceiling. And the gas is running. And I don't mean to glorify drug use, but, like, man, I, if I could... I mean, the thought I had at that moment was, if I could spend the rest of my life with this guy's hands in my <laughs> mouth, with the gas cranked up, I would fucking take it. That's all I could think. You I, are a drug addict. I, that's what I was thinking. And I was thinking about drugs. I was thinking about when I was in Ithaca College with Todd the first time I took nitrous and I, I like passed out i started rolling down the hill and i, was I don't like, think you should take nitrous at the dentist Shh, let's not talk about it <laughs> it's like the only thing left in my life i stopped taking nyquil i stopped you know i got nothing left you know i have i haven't talked to my sponsor about the fact that i got nitrous at the dentist when did you have it i had it on uh monday have you talked no, to your, tuesday have you talked to your sponsor yeah and you left that out i didn't leave it out on purpose i just didn't mention yeah. it Tomorrow, well, I you think... You were at the dentist. I've had the conversation with him before. Is it okay if when I'm having work done that I get nitrous? And he said... And he, if he listens to this episode, he's going to say it's not true. But he said that if I'm having work done, I'm allowed to get nitrous. I think They gave that, me a post. That's kind of standard. Two posts and two crowns. It's a lot of work in there. And if he prescribed you, like, Vicodin for afterwards, that's okay also. He offered me Perk 30s. I said, no, thank you, doctor. Yeah. He didn't really offer me anything. Oh. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the kind of drug addict that I am. That I, I was so, and it's fucked up, but I was so excited to have the nitrous on. Do you remember, years ago, you played a gig... And you came up to me and you're like, they gave me a drink ticket. I think I'm going to get a beer. And I'm like, Dave, you can't have a beer. And you're like, beer's not my thing. I'm okay. And I grabbed that out of your hand. I'm like, if you drink beer, then you might get heroin. And I grabbed it out of your hand and I got a beer for myself. I don't remember At that. Dom Pedro's. At Dom Pedro's. I was like, I didn't know you that well. But I just wanted your drink ticket. You just wanted the beer. <laughs> so I am going to start. I, I pretty much rewritten out my fourth step. You're on it now, by the way, because of this whole Ivan Neville scenario. You're on mine as of today. Why? The I just Ivan, put you down. Also because of the Ivan Neville yes, scenario? Yes, I just wrote it you was, down. But it's your part. You have to look at your part, right? You said My you part gonna... was not listening to the interview. And what was my part? I don't know. Yelling at me. No, you had Not a... sending it to me. Not sending me the interview. Well, that was true. So, Ray, let's just be clear about this. 
I apologize that I yelled at you. And I apologize into. for not listening. I accept not, your apology. I accept your apology. Um, so I'm going over my fourth step, hopefully tomorrow afternoon. And uh, what's going on with your fourth step? I'm, I'm doing mine with my sponsor on Zoom today at 6.30, and it's like 3.30 now, so I've got to get home. Are you enjoying uh, your... You, you, you say you... There's a Yiddish word for the way you talk about your sponsor, which is kvel. Do you know this word? Yeah, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, Dave. Are you? No, you're not. You're Floridian, uh, and you're all. Are you? You've been quelling about your sponsor a lot. I, well, this it's hard. He's like, okay, you, do you want to write another page for Thursday at six? So I'm like, okay. I'm like, fuck. This is like it's feeling like school, and I'm also like. I feel like I've run out of things. And he's like, we haven't even started. These are just practices. So. You've had like 54 stuff. He's the most thorough sponsor in the history of sponsors. <laughs> but he's like, once you're done, all these things are going to be removed from your life and you're going to be reborn a new person. I'm like, okay, I like that idea. So there was this guy at my meeting who uh, talked about, he said he had a very rigorous sponsor and his sponsor liked to have sex with him in the ass. And he would rigorously fuck him on the beach, <laughs> on the picnic. There's this guy who, um, I just like the word rigorously. He said his sponsor was old school and that he had him do his uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth step all at once. And um, I'd like to do that. Then I could have sex again. Yes. And eat pubes at the same time. That will be the next level in a sec. Feed me pubic hair while you fuck me. Um, what was I going to say? So the guy said he, like, he, he reads his fourth step and he does his sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth step. And, uh, and then he said he felt great. And then literally, literally, yeah. walking back to the car, he felt his character defects coming back. Literally. So fast. Yes. So, I mean, that's, that's not the story. I, not, the, not the Indian that's I not expect. What, that's not what Costa I, says. I thought he said lifted, character defects lifted away. No, it's like a beard growing back on your face immediately. So that's why people have to do them over and over. It's why it's constant vigilance. It's not. Twelfth, listen, or twelfth it, step. It says, no. Eleventh step. Tenth step. Tenth step. You know, but the point is, it's constant vigilance. You can have your. He said, my character defects were removed, and then when I walked to my car, they came back. So, like, it's just constant vigilance. Yeah. Um, now, I want to tell you a stupid story. It might not be worth telling or not. Uh, I do not follow Kat Marnell. Like, she's blocked me, so I can't. She's blocked follow everybody. Her. I could. I, I want her to block me. You, so you you can fo- you follow Kat oh, yeah, with impunity. Yeah, she doesn't know about me. She started a see that's interesting. She started a Patreon account uh, and uh, a Patreon whatever it is. I love that a rich girl starting a Patreon account. I don't think she's rich, but for if you join at the seventeen dollar a month level, that's she a, calls you every month. Wow. Do you, do you, I don't know. Does anybody want that? I want it for the show. <laughs> yes. But I don't think yes. she, I don't want to give her the so money. So you want me to do it and have her call me? Yes. So that, that would be bad to secretly record it, though. Yes, very bad. And we only, we pray for Kat Marnell, and we love Kat Marnell. And I know. You love Kat Marnell. I love Kat Marnell. And one day, Kat Marnell will be back on the show. Do I think she will apologize? No. No. But I do believe that one day she will be back. When she has something to to promote promote <laughs> and, and do you want to hear something really ridiculous yes i wanted kristen johnston you know this kind of famous yeah, she's actress great. um 
to be uh, to come back on the show, do this thing, and uh, and we've been communicating. Next time you talk to her, tell her that I watched her every Saturday night in uh, Hot Keys. I don't know what that is. I know. Just tell her that. She'll know what it is. I'm not telling her that. Anyway, so what is it? It was a play that was two blocks away from my house that she was in. It was every Saturday night. It started at midnight. It would go till like 3 in the morning. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. So I'm she was the star. All right, I'll tell her. You could, maybe I'll have you tell her. I'll remind you. That would be great. That would be great. Um, so I'm sitting with Nora, and, I, and I'm working from home, and she's fucking sick. And me and Kristen Johnston are communicating about her coming on the show, and I guess she wasn't feeling well. And I told her she was going to feel better, and she said thank you, and she sent me a kissy face emoji. And Nora looked at it, and she thought I was cheating on Linda with Kristen Johnson. Well, that's understandable. And then I I, I had to have her read the whole thread, which is just like me asking, like... uh, It's all dopey stuff. Well, it's just, would you come on the show? You were so great on the show, blah, 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 blah. And Nora's crying hysterically. Oh, my God. I think you and Mommy are going to get divorced. Well, it's scary for a kid to, like, see your dad get a kissy face from a pretty woman, pretty actress in Hollywood. I know. That your dad is into. Yeah, my dad, yeah, I was like, I was like, if this was for Grandpa Allen, then you should be (laughs) nervous, but but that's... I I have a friend that ends every email, a female friend who ends every email with a kissy face. Exactly. With a heart or no heart? It's a heart and kiss XXX. Oh, my God. That was my dad's phone. phone. Somebody, that, that friend of mine who sends, sends the emails with the kissy face, this is years ago, she got a phone call. She worked for David Bowie, and she got a phone call. And he's like, hi, it's David. I'm with Mick. Can we come over? We've got some Coke. And she's like, yeah, cool. And so Mick Jagger and David Bowie come over to her, ha- her apartment and with a girl, with like a beautiful woman, and they're like doing coke, doing coke. And my friend is like, I'm the coolest person in the world. And then they, the three of them, not my friend, go into the bedroom and they're fucking. And then she's like, oh. Did your friend get to do coke at least? Yeah, they were all doing coke. And then they left. And then he called again like a week later. He's like, hey, I'm with Mick. Can we come over? And she's like, I think I'm just being used. Like, I thought I was cool. I think I'm just being used. Did she let them come for the second time? She did the second time, and then the third time she was like, no, I'm busy. She's like, I'm sorry, David. This is where I draw the line. (laughs) But why wasn't she included in the rumpus? The rigorous rumpus. She had already had sex with one of them. Which one? David. But he didn't want to keep fucking her, and they didn't want to have the foursome. They just wanted to have the threesome. Yeah. What a crazy world. <laughs> Have you ever had a foursome, Ray? Of course. Five some? I've had every some. You've had every some? Well, like, wh- when does it become an orgy? Like, three, four, five, and then... Hey, I don't know. I don't know. I've been, I've been in a room where, like, 50 people are having sex. I've been... Were they all men? I've been in a room where men and women are having sex. Where was this room? In, in 14th Street. Not was my, it in your house? Not my apartment. No, down the street. <laughs> Oh, Ray, if your walls could talk. It was at the Hellfire Club. Wow. Do they still do that stuff? It's all gone. It's all gone. All gone. That triangle building was all sex clubs. When did it end? Whenever the meatpacking district happened. I don't know. Did you ever wear a dog collar and was led around by it? No, but people came came with shopping bags with their outfits in them. People from the suburbs would drive in and then change in their cars into their outfits and then go in there and get beaten. Well, that's exciting stuff. I have an exciting, dopey voicemail. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Okay. 
Hey, Dave, Dopey Nation. This is uh, Igor from Chicago, but currently residing in Ukraine. Uh, thought I'd uh, record a dopey story for you. Uh, so this happened back in 2007. I was 21 and uh, recently paroled from prison, uh, living in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, so just hanging out with a group of friends just at somebody's house. Nothing really going on. And uh, one of the people there was my buddy, this guy Nick Biggs, who was this really big guy with uh, all sorts of you know mental and physical problems. So he always had a bunch of different prescription pills that he was always uh, you know handing out to people. So this day he's handing out clodipin. Uh, I forget what milligram they were, but they were the green round ones. And I'd never taken them before, and for whatever reason, this day I was like, sure, you know, I'll give it a try. Uh, and, uh, he gives me two, he's like, you know, I know you, I know you can handle your pills. So I pop two of them, sit around, wait about an hour, he comes back, and he's like, uh, so what do you, how's it going? And I'm like, I don't know, I don't really feel anything. He's like, alright, take another one. About a half an hour later, how's it going? Don't feel anything, another one. So over the course of two hours, I must have taken like four or five of these clonopin, and I wasn't really feeling anything, uh... I took a nap on the couch for like a little while, maybe like an hour, and then I wake up, all my friends are like, we're going to the next town over and go to a bar, you coming? And I'm like, sure. They're like, you good to drive? And I'm like, yeah, I don't feel shit. So I get in the car behind the wheel, start driving, and immediately black out. Like, I remember getting behind the wheel, starting the car, and the next thing I remember is I'm getting pulled over. And I don't know where I am or how long it's been or why I'm getting pulled over. Uh, so the cops come up and they're like, Hey, you know, license and registration. Do you know why we pulled you over? And I say, no, I have no idea. Uh, you know, I say, I think they said I'd been swerving or something. They said, uh, have you been drinking at all? No, I haven't been drinking, which I hadn't. Uh, will you take a breathalyzer? So I'm like, sure. I blow the breathalyzer, blow all zeros. I think I'm good to go. Uh, and the cops start asking me, you know, like where I'm coming from, where I'm going. And I tell him, and he starts kind of looking at me weird. And he's like, uh, which, which, which street? How are you going to get there? And I tell him, and he gives me this look, and I realize right then that I fucked up. Uh, and it turned out that I had immediately taken a wrong turn from my friend's house and had driven in the wrong direction for probably like 15, 20 minutes, ended up in uh, the wrong town. So the cop's like, well, why don't you get out of the car? I want to give you a roadside sobriety test. So I'm like, all right. I get out, and I remember him telling me, uh, stand on one foot, touch your nose, and count to three 1,000. So I'm like, all right, that should be pretty easy. I do that, no problem. Feel pleased with myself, put my foot down. This cop looks at me, and he's like, what are you doing? I said, count to 30. And I'm like, oh, shit. And now I'm like, here, well, let me do it again. I just didn't hear you right. So now I'm trying to do it, but now I'm so nervous I can't even get up to three again. And eventually this cop's like, all right, all right, that's enough. Uh, and by this time, the other cop has searched my car and found a weed pipe and, like, maybe half a gram of weed. So they're, like, already going to arrest me. So they put me in the back of the cop car, handcuff me, and start driving. And, like, I'm all benzoed out. Like, now it's hitting me. And uh, they drive instead of the to the police station, they drive to a hospital like, what are we doing here? And they're like, uh, well, we're going to give you a blood test because we still think you're on something. So they take me to this hospital. And I remember being like, I have to do this, right? And they say, yeah, you have to do this. 
so they, you know, give me a, a blood drug test uh, and put me back in the car, drive me to the police station, and I should be, like, freaking out because, you know, my parole could get violated and all this shit, but, like, the Klonopin's really hitting me hard, so I'm kind of in a goofy, good mood, and I'm talking to the cops, and I'm like, hey, you know, I've been a good sport about this, I, like, have cooperated and everything, you know, before you, like, lock me up for the night, you know, at least let me smoke a cigarette, and they're like, oh, I don't know, we'll see, so we get to the police station, we get out of the car, cops are like, all right, smoke your cigarette, so I take one out, I don't have a lighter, I realize, and I ask them, like, you guys got a light, and they're like, no, what am I going to do? They're like, I guess you're not going to smoke. So they take me in, they process me, put me in a holding cell, and I'm sitting there, and I reach into my front hoodie pocket, and I realize that even though they took everything off of me, that one single cigarette I didn't get to smoke is still in my pocket. So I'm like, all right, got to find a way to smoke this. And I look up, and I see this fluorescent light above the toilet. I'm like, well, that looks like that could set something on fire. So I stand in the toilet, I'm trying to light the cigarette, and it won't reach all the way through the grate. So I get some toilet paper, roll it up into like a long kind of stick type thing. And I'm trying to stick that through the grate so that I can light that on fire and light my cigarette with it. And there's this pounding at the door and I turn around and the door opens to the, like the cell. And these two cops come in and they're just looking at me standing on top of the toilet with this toilet paper rolled up in my hand trying to reach the fluorescent light through the grate. And they're like, what the fuck are you doing? And real calm, I'm like, well, I wanted to smoke this cigarette and I couldn't reach it through the grate, so I'm trying to use this tissue to get a light. And they're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, do you know how much trouble you'd get in if you started a fire in here? I tell them something along the lines of, like, no, I wouldn't start a fire in here. Like, I'm a responsible person. So they're like, whatever. They take me, move me into a different cell that doesn't have a light and doesn't have a toilet, and I pass out and wake up in the morning. My roommate picks me up and takes me home. And I was living uh, in this town called Naperville, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's like pretty yuppie uh, family neighborhood and stuff. And he drops me off and goes to work. So I'm like still, you know, kind of fucked up from this clonopin, but I'm kind of angry. But I'm like on benzo, so I'm not that angry. So I'm wandering around the house and I see this black paint marker that I know my other roommate used to use to write like political slogans on this old white Buick he had, like shit like uh, 9-11 was an inside job or vote for Ron Paul. And uh, so I'm like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. So I take this black paint marker, go to the garage and write in huge letters, fuck you, bacon breathing, civilian raping pig fucks. Right. And I think I'm all badass like that'll show him. And I also think that it'll wash off because, you know, I've seen him change the slogans on his cars. I'm not thinking about the fact that his car is smooth and the garage door is porous, so it won't wash off. So I go back inside, I take a nap, I get a call from Nick Biggs, the guy who had given me the Klonopin, and he's like, shit, what happened to you? And I tell him, and he's like, oh, that sucks, man. Well, sit tight, I'm going to pick you up, we're going to go to my house, I'm going to get a bunch of coke, and we're going to do it. I'm like, all right, that sounds great. So he picks me up, we go to his house, we sit around doing blow all the rest of the afternoon into the evening and then suddenly I get a call from one of my roommates and I pick up and he's just like Igor I'm sorry I I didn't want to tell him but they were going to arrest me and I got priors and I'm like what and then this cop takes the phone and he's like is this Igor yeah like do you live at this address did you write this shit on the garage door and I'm like yeah that was me he goes, all right, you got until like 9 o'clock to come into the Naperville police station, bring $80 to pay your fine, otherwise we're putting out a warrant for your arrest. 
So I hang up the phone, and it's like, what was that? And I tell him, I'm like, fuck, dude. He goes, what are you going to do? I go, I guess I got to go pay him. Like, can you drive me to the police station? And we're all super coked out. And he's like, no, I'm not fucking driving you to the police station. Sorry. So I call a different friend. She picks me up, drives me to the police station. I get there. I call the cop and uh, get in contact with him. He lets me in, and this whole, like, precinct is, is dark. There's, like, nobody there uh, except this one cop who takes me into this office and, like, sits me down. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, fuck, am I about to get my ass kicked here? Uh, but he, like, reads off the, uh, you know, the charges or the complaint or whatever, and he's like, so it says here you wrote on your garage door, fuck you, civilian raping, bacon-breathing pig fucks. Uh... What was that all about? So I'm like, look, I, I know it's probably offensive to you. You know, I, I get how this looks, but honestly, that wasn't directed towards you. It was at these particular two cops and, you know, from a different town. And he goes, I don't give a fuck. I'm not offended. You know what I do give a fuck about is that I spent the afternoon talking to a bunch of mothers on the phone who are all calling me, asking me why their kids are getting off the bus at their bus stop. And they see fuck you written in huge letters on your garage across the street from the bus stop, which... It also hadn't occurred to me that there's this big conversion van sitting in our driveway, so from the street, all you could see is, fuck you. So I'm like, uh, yeah, sorry, I, you know, what, like, what am I going to say? So he's like, whatever, just you bring the money. So I, I pay him off, and I leave and go back to uh, Nick's house and do the rest of the coke. But anyway, that's pretty much the entire story. Uh, hope you find that interesting. I've been going back through and listening to all the old episodes and today i listened to the one where you talk about uh having a barber who's a russian jew named igor and i was like hey i'm a ukrainian jew named igor uh anyway yeah i love the podcast love the dopey nation it's uh definitely been one of the things that's helped me in my recovery which hopefully come december i'll have a year clean uh yeah stay strong toodles fucking toodles for chris wow what an amazing voicemail. That was hilarious. I liked it from the moment I heard his voice. I was like, this guy's got a funny voice. He's Igor, this guy is a good storyteller. Now, yeah. I'm not one for God shots or Todd shots. I'm not a person that talks or thinks like that. But today, I went to see Igor to get my hair cut. He's also a, not Russian, but Ukrainian. And, and we had actually done a whole bit about Igor that I took out. We erased. And, and now, look at that. You know, and my barber's a Russian Jew, too. Not, that, has not, that does not help. Well. You're taking away from my moment Okay, here. go ahead. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. When he said that, I, I thought, did Dave know that was there? I didn't know. Wow. Igor, that was a great story. And I love Klonopin's so much. Oh, really? That I, I thought he made Klonopin sound like not fun at all. Dude, I used to eat Klonopin's like, like food. Like, I, I know Klonopin so well that I can taste them right now. Ugh. I would... Get like I would go down to downtown Los Angeles and buy them by the handful and eat them. Like eat chew them. them, just eat them. That's <laughs> chew them up. That's what took Stevie Nicks down was Clonopin. I I was a, a great Clonopin addict. I, I love that and I love that story, Igor. That was a, a great, terrific story. There was also um, we were laughing so much during that story. Well, you were laughing. I was I was getting ready to go. I'm ready to go because we're running out of time. Now there's a few more things I need to say before we go. First off, thank you, Ray, for coming. It's always your pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, secondly, Dopey Nation members, 
old school Dopey Nation members, write me an email at uh, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, if you remember the show from back in the day, um, I just want to see who's still around from back in the day. What like, is it, five years? It's almost five years. Five years this winter. Um, so I want to see who's still around. And uh, if you're new, write an email too. Put in a dopey story like that. That was classic. That was a great one. Fuck you, you bacon breath <laughs> fucking pigs. Whatever. I like he's like, he saw that mark and he's like, well, I know what I'm going to do now. I know the perfect thing to do right now. Yes. The other thing that is interesting is that this is the guy who did that jazzy, good, so bad version. Oh, that was cool. Igor's a very talented drug addict. So thank you, Igor, for stepping up to the plate. Um, leave a review on iTunes. Leave a fucking five-star review. Write something nice. Write something nice about Ray, for God's sake. Maybe I should write something. Maybe you should write something nice about yourself. I don't even... How do you leave a review? You go onto iTunes and you hit leave a review. I don't know, dude. Just fucking Google it. I don't know anything. I want to acknowledge and thank Sam for his hard work in helping me produce this amazing podcast. Oh, yeah. Hi, Sam. I want to thank everybody for doing all the stuff they do, but none of them work nearly as hard and comprehensively as Sam. Sam does a lot. He does. He and does people a, don't know. What Sam really does is he, he deals with my dumbass. Sam gets like the, the hard work because he has to deal with Dave's insanity. All I do is come here and talk with Dave, and then Sam has to like calm Dave down and like walk him through everything. Sam has to talk and listen. Um, all right, so Ray, say the thing at the end of the show. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. That's nice, Ray. You know what I love that Ray does when, he, when Ray is playing a song live and recording it? You do these shout-outs. I love that. Oh, yeah. Do, do a little bit of that. Give me a little... Shout-out to Dopey Nation. I love when Ray shouts Fucking like toodles that. for Chris. All right. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. But before we go... What? We need to go. Uh, this version of Good So Bad was played by Kurt. My father loved it. It was on the new Patreon episode. Here's Kurt's instrumental, super slow, Good So Bad. <laughs> 